We are finishing today our two and a half year exposition through the Gospel of Mark. We took one, one, one gap somewhere in, in, in the middle in order to uh, exposit the, the great sermons of Acts, and that is why it is not uh, quite an equivalent of every, every week for two and a half years, but I think this will be our, our 49th sermon, so we almost hit 50. I wanted it to be a nice round number, but I, I couldn't do another sermon on a non-inspired part of uh, the Gospel of Mark 16. So we've already said, and just that as we finished up, we, we technically finished the exposition of the text a few weeks ago, because uh, as we, dis, uh, we discovered, and you can go back and, and read there, the inspired portion of what Mark actually wrote down by the Holy Spirit finished at Mark chapter 16, verse 8, and it was a later edition in church history that somebody penned a true but not inspired ending, a long ending that went from verse 9 to 20. And that's not a big worry for us because we can tell from the historical manuscripts that that wasn't in the original. We shouldn't be all that confused. It was, it was received by a lot of people but not universally. And so we, we looked at that, we studied it a bit, but it's not inspired scripture. That's fine. What we're going to do today is, is round up. If I was to, to pretty much just say, you know, remember back to our first sermon and those, those general opening statements we made about the themes of Mark and what to expect so that you can, at the end, look back, I doubt there would be many of us here who can remember that sermon, not just for bad memory, but also because most of you weren't here. We, we've, we've grown a, a fair bit. We've, uh, we've added all sorts of different families and individuals throughout that time. And so it's, it's now what, what we're going to do is I'm going to take us on a thematic overview of Mark by looking at two verses in the first chapter. So if you're in Mark chapter 1, I want you to look at verse 14 and 15. The very first words of Jesus in this gospel that Mark wrote. And we, we re reminded ourselves that Mark was early on and that he was writing, as each of the gospel writers did, for very specific reasons. He was not just trying to do the exact same thing as the others had done or probably hadn't done yet. They were not just copying each other. They were each writing to a particular audience for a particular reason in a certain setting. And Mark's audience was that he was writing to the Roman church with a, with a mind to convince them in somewhat of an apologetic, uh, not, not a sorry manner, but apologetic in the sense of, uh, of making a defense is the technical mean of, meaning of that word. He wanted to give them details such that they would be equipped with an understanding of the gospel, an understanding of the life of Jesus that would push, push back against what they were hearing from the skeptics. So what the Jews were telling them and what the Gentiles were telling them was that this whole gospel message is complete and utter garbage. You have believed a lie is what they were telling the Christians. From the Jewish side, they were saying, you claim to be believing in the Jewish Messiah. Let us just tell you, according to our Old Testament scriptures, there's no Jewish Messiah coming who's going to get beaten by the Romans. There's no anointed holy one, blessed one, who's going to come and be accursed on a cross in crucifixion. That's garbage. You're believing a lie. Then also, of course, they were saying that this is why you're being so hounded and so attacked and so persecuted is because you're offending God. You're saying that this Jesus of Nazareth, the blasphemer, is in fact the Christ. Now, from the Roman side, from the, the Greek or the Gentile side, what the Christians were hearing was... You're all fools. You're weak, embarrassing fools because your saviour is a weak, embarrassing fool. 
Here we are with our majestic temples and strong gods, and you've seen how they're all chiseled. They've all got, you know, abs like me, and they're all massive and strong, and uh, no laughing, thank you, not, not at that. Uh, uh, you know, here are these enormously powerful gods and, and these, these strong uh, deities in this huge pantheon that win wars and take lightning, you know, by its, uh, grab it and throw it down on earth. There's all these magnificent views of their gods, and they would say, of your God, he died under Pontius Pilate. Not even a Caesar, not another God, just, just Pontius Pilate pinned him to a tree and you're worshipping him now. The Greeks had this, had this uh, sculpture of a, of a man on a cross with a donkey's head on it and a Christian man bowing down and they had this phrase that, you know, here, I think his name was Onesimus. Onesimus worships his ass God. The Greeks found this so, so foolish, it was insulting. That you would speak the gospel in, in my midst asking me to bend down to, bend my knee to, repent and have faith in this Jesus who died. And so Mark is writing this both to tell the, the, the Christians, Jew and Gentile, that as far as the, 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 the Jewish Messiah is concerned, it all culminates in Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus. So we'll use the phrase now of, he is the true Israelite. This is one of the themes you find through Mark's gospel. Matthew also picks it up in magnificent detail. He is the true Israelite. But also from the Greek side, he is the true son of God. He is the true majestic divinity in human flesh that, that outpowers every, every conception, every idol, every idea that you worship. Jesus is the true Israelite and the true son of God. We're going to read the first uh, uh, words that come out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel as we look in uh, chapter 1. Verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. May God bless the reading of his word in our midst this morning. In Mark's, if you're thinking structurally, if you're my type of person and you like, you like black and white structures of things, Mark, Mark's gospel can be split in half and the middle section is a couple of chapters. So technically a thirds, but, but it's, it's a sandwich. We have chapters one through halfway through eight and this is, Jesus, this is Jesus preaching the kingdom. He's preaching the kingdom through things like parables, saying here's what the kingdom's gonna be like. He's preaching the kingdom by establishing his own power through miracles, saying I'm the king, look at me. Halfway through chapter 8 until the end of chapter 11, uh, uh, sorry, the end of chapter 10, what we have is the, the middle section of the cost of the kingdom, where he actually takes his disciples aside, no longer preaching to the crowds, and he's no longer doing, doing just, you know, huge healings uh, in great numbers and in great, great uh, style. Rather, he takes them aside and he's teaching them, to be in this kingdom, you must die to yourself. You must bend your knee to the king. You must be willing to put others first. You must live in humble service of others. It's this, it's this idea of what must the individual be like who is partaking in the kingdom. And then thirdly, it's the establishing of the kingdom. From chapters 11 through to 16, what we see is Jesus bringing the kingdom through its establishment. That is, he's starting to preach and proclaim and show forth his kingship. He's starting to tell people, your old system symbolized in the temple is coming down. 
He's starting to say, I'm going to send the gospel far and wide and nothing will stop it. And then he goes and and has his Lord's Supper with his disciples where he teaches them of the new kingdom, new covenant meal in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake in soon. And then he goes and dies whereby in his blood he purchases kingdom people and establishes the kingdom. Then he rises in resurrection in order to seal his atonement and the beginning of the new covenant. So there there are your thirds. He preached the kingdom, he told them the cost of the kingdom, and then he brought the kingdom. And here in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1, we see those very themes on his lips from the beginning. He came in proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So let's start pulling apart those two themes that I said. It's going to be Jesus as the true Israelite, and Jesus as the true Son of God, as we sort of thematically uh, tease out the, the whole of the book of Mark. First of all, the idea of Jesus as the true Israelite is seen in that he is, through his whole life, the truly obedient one. The only obedient one, of course. Everybody else is set in such sharp juxtaposition that they're continually sinning, even his friends. The religious elites are all sinning and and completely misuse and twist the law of God. But Jesus is the perfect, sinless one. So that he might come for us and be the the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. So that he might have God... God, uh, place our sins onto himself, Jesus needed himself a clean slate. And Jesus came and was for us and in our place a perfect human being, representing us so that there would be a human righteousness to be given to you by faith alone. So Jesus was the true obedient Israelite. He was the true law keeper. Remember one of the first things that we see Jesus do in the book of Mark is come and be baptized by John. That is a sign from the very first moments of the gospel that Jesus is obeying what God is commanding the Israelites to do. Do you remember in, in, in Matthew's version, we hear Jesus say to John, baptize me, and John say, that doesn't make sense. This is the baptism of repentance. What have you got to repent for is basically his thinking. And Jesus says, just permit it to be so now, for it is necessary that I fulfill all righteousness. His submitting to baptism was not because he needed to repent, but because had he been an Israelite, And all Israelites be commanded to be baptized, and he was not baptized, he would be breaking a commandment from God through his prophet John. So Jesus submitted to baptism to show, I'm going to obey every law there is given from heaven. I'm going to tick off one by one, and have throughout my whole life, all of the commandments given from God to Israel to show that he is the true Israelite. Some of the ways he obeyed the law of God perfectly was in actually the context of debating against the Pharisees and Sadducees their their false ways of obeying. So we see this come up when he perfectly obeys the Sabbath by doing a good work on the Sabbath by healing the man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees get all, all kinds of agitated. They actually start planning to kill him because that's not allowed on a Sabbath day. But Jesus is being seen here, contradicted against the Pharisees, juxtaposed against their fake obedience was his true obedience, the true obedience as a true and faithful Israelite. We also see him do this when he breaks their traditions around food laws 
and about the traditions of what goes into your body makes you sinful and uh, unable to approach God. And if you don't wash with all of these extra traditional ways, you're unclean. And Jesus pushes back against all of that. He continually broke man's law in order to uphold God's law because he's the true Israelite. And Mark wanted us to see that. So, So in other words, he wants the Christians and any of the Jewish readers to be reading Mark's gospel and realizing Jesus wasn't the faithless Israelite. Jesus wasn't the shameful, law-breaking Israelite. He was the only obedient one. And his greatest act of obedient aggression was when he went into the temple where they had their party going on and their, 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 you know, their festival, their, their, their markets where they were exchanging money and selling at a huge profit all of the, the sacrificial animals and, and they had, all, you know, they had the, the, the dunker priest going and they had the piñatas. It was all a big party when it was supposed to be prayer and Jesus came in and toppled their tables and whipped people and drove everybody out. That was one of the greatest acts of aggression that marked him out for execution by them. But again, a sign of his true obedience, their false and phony obedience. So we also see uh, that, 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 that Jesus was, as the true Israelite, so he's truly obedient, but he's also the true king they were waiting for. As early as the first few chapters, he starts telling them uh, as he's going around Galilee and he's going around doing his miracles, he's teaching them what we call kingdom parables. Remember, the kingdom of God is, is like a, a light put on a lampstand or, or the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like that, the people of the kingdom are like this and like that. And so he's teaching them kingdom par- parables because he sees himself as the true king. In chapter 12, he calls himself the son of David, the true king, the anointed one, David's lord, the, the son of God. That's what he starts doing. He starts putting all those titles together and applying them to himself. So we see that he was not just the true Israelite because he's obeying the law. He's being the true Israelite in the sense that he's their true king. He starts telling them in those parables about the kingdom in ways that ruffle the Jewish feathers. He tells these parables about the, uh, the people of the kingdom will be marked by invisible regeneration. You know, the seed will come into you and you'll be a new person, but it's, it's like when a, when a plant is growing underground, you can't see it happening. It's an invisible reality behind the scenes that God is doing. And then he says about the kingdom, it doesn't come in in an immediate, shocking, catastrophic, worldwide event. It comes in like a seed to the ground that you didn't even see because it was a mustard seed, a tiny seed. But given time, it grows and grows and becomes the greatest tree in the garden. That's what he said of the kingdom. That's how it would take place. Bit by bit, it would take over the world. It would be an everlasting kingdom. So again, against the Jewish skeptic, this is the, this is the answer to their rejection. God is not going to look like what they thought he would look like when he came to them. And so now that they're saying, we reject this Jesus, the Christians that Mark is writing to are supposed to go, yeah, right, well, this makes sense. I shouldn't think if the Jews rejected him, then surely I should reject him. I should think... Hey, this was prophesied. If the religious elites are rejecting him, it's, it's one of the good signs. He's probably the guy. It should, not, uh, it should not buffet their faith and push against their trust in Jesus as a Messiah whatsoever. <coughs> but also, upon their rejection, and when Jesus was preaching to them, he told them, he told them very clearly that upon their rejection of him, as the final one sent from God, the Father, He sent prophets, he killed them. He sent prophets, he killed them. He sent prophets, he killed them. Now he sends his son. 
and you're going to kill me. And then I'm going to send an army and destroy your house. And that was prophesying the destruction of the temple that would come. He was not just expecting, a, as Jesus prophesied the future of his ministry, he wasn't all thinking it was going to be positive and perfect and everybody's going to love him. So that now, in later years, as Mark's writing to the Christians, he's reassuring them, Jesus was not surprised by the outcome. He prophesied this outcome. He told us this was coming. Don't waver in your faith thinking, thinking that they're probably right, we're probably wrong. Listen to the words of Jesus. He said that when they rejected their true king, the true Israelite, this would come upon them. And so it did. Jesus, <coughs> Jesus is therefore... As we take a one big chunky theme out of Mark's gospel, he is the true Israelite, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's why he said in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. He didn't say the times have changed. Snip the calendar, throw the rest in the bin. God gave up on his plan, plan B. No, he says the time is fulfilled where everything was heading in God's perfect, meticulous sovereignty, whereby he controlled every army that came against us, every one of our sons that died in battle, every one of our kings that fell down in sin. He ordained it all, and now the time is fulfilled. Now we're standing on the very brink of the new covenant. It's about to occur. Now, one way we can at least, if we're looking for an application for us, one of the ways you need to reorient, reorient your brain, your mind, as you think about the Bible, is that there is no way to be a faithful New Testament Christian if you unhitch, unplug, tear out, or ignore functionally the Old Testament. Jesus makes no sense. Jesus is not a Messiah if there is no Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies and themes and foreshadowing ideas. We should not think that Jesus came to abolish and throw away and take a, hang a huge left on the plans of God and change things. He rather came, and, and, and one of the key marks of a biblical theology, a good and right sound theology, is that you will be marked by great consistency and continuity, though there are some changes Old to New Testament. If your theology has in it huge and enormous jumps and hurdles and hoops whereby the Old Testament and the New Testament have just about no correlation whatsoever or you throw out the Old Covenant because that's an Old Testament God, any kind of mix of that you need to repent of and realize that God gives to us in Jesus a fulfillment of the old breaking forth the new. Jesus is the true Israelite. But he is also the true son of God. So to the Greek conception, a son of God was a demigod. They had their, their pantheons of God, right? Maybe they, 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 they were the Greeks who still held to, to Zeus. Maybe they were the Romans who held to the Jupiter and, and, the, and all the others that were involved and, and what other pagan entities they threw in there. But they had the idea of God joining himself to humanity. Now, usually that just looked like one of the buff gods coming down and finding a hot lady and joining himself to humanity. And the result of that was a demigod, a semi-god, semi-man mix. They had this conception. But the mark of that was always strength and power and, and, and domination and all those sorts of things. So into this conception, we are shown that Jesus, who the Greeks thought was weak because he got killed by Pilate, they thought that he was weak because he could not uh, overpower his enemies. We're realizing that he is the true divine God in flesh. 
Again, the, the Gentiles thought that about Caesar, that he was some kind of God in flesh. They thought that about some of their other demigods. And yet against them, Mark shows Jesus, uh, Mark shows Jesus as far more, infinitely more authoritative and powerful than any of the false gods the Gentiles had dreamed up. In Mark's gospel, what you see is he, he, he shows Jesus immediately as just having this, this powerful authority. First of all, it, it starts coming out uh, over the spiritual realm. When he just casts out demons, they shriek and run from him and never come back. That's the sort of thing that was occurring over the pagan world, these demonic possessions, these, these spiritual entities that were, that were harassing people and whatnot. They, this was known to them. No one had the ability to just speak to it. They had incantations. They had tricks about lying down in snake pits. They had all these, these concoctions that you would drink, probably kill you, worth a try. They had no true power because Satan doesn't cast out Satan. But Jesus, the true God, the true light, came in and was able to cast out darkness. This is Mark showing the pagans, the Romans, the Greeks, Jesus is far more than some weak hillbilly from Galilee who got put on a cross. He also shows him as having power over the natural realm, which we see in his healing. Remember his, his amazing, instantaneous, total and permanent healing of people who had been born blind or born lame or had some kind of incurable disease and he would just, with a word, by, by spitting in their, in their eyes or by doing something weird, they would just be healed immediately. Mark was showing that Jesus had power over the natural realm. We also see him walking on water in the middle of a storm that sent Korea fishermen filling their jocks. They were so afraid. They were scaring. They were so scared. They, they were sure they were going to die. Jesus is just waltzing on the water. It's a, it's a beautiful Friday afternoon. Tells the, the waves to calm down. They, they really do. He just hops in the boat, and then they're, they're at the shore. He does it another time. He's sleeping. He wakes up. He says, come on, calm down. Ocean calms down, and the fishermen are now more afraid of him than they were of the storm. They have mythological tales about a God doing that once or twice. They tell their stories of Poseidon being able to command the storms. They don't remember it ever actually happening in real time. They've never met a guy who can actually do that. Yet here's Jesus, the true son of God, the true God in flesh, has power over the natural realm. And then he had that ability to just create food out of nothing. Remember? For the 5,000 men, which would have been 20,000 people, for the 4,000, which would have been somewhere 15 or so thousand people, he just spoke and, and food just was being created out of thin air. That would be amazing to a Gentile. Well, of course, to anybody. Then one of his greatest powers was that he, he displayed his power over death, raising himself to life. Didn't just claim that there's an afterlife somewhere, there's an underworld, there's a, you know, there's a realm of the gods. He proved what he said by taking death face on, going into its own belly and exploding up in resurrection power. This is all in the theme of Jesus being the true God, the true son of God. Greeks, Gentiles, Romans, pagans, beware. But here's where it gets, it gets amazing. You remember a few times I've mentioned that Mark intentionally reflects the prophet Isaiah. In his crucifixion account, he's, he's, he, it, it reads like a New Testament version of Isaiah 53. Uh, throughout Mark's gospel, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's themes from Isaiah just, just shining through. Remember, even Mark starts in chapter 1 by saying, you know, the very first line, 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So he actually sort of sets out and is an introductory verse to his whole book, the whole gospel about Jesus' life. Here's what Isaiah said about Jesus. And I'll give you all the ways that he fulfilled it. So these, these themes are coming through. One of the ways this also happens is, is with Jesus' knowledge of the future. If you're familiar with Isaiah's prophecies, in chapter 40 to 45, there is this, this amazing divine smack talk section, which theologians call the trial of the false gods, where Yahweh comes to his covenant people Israel and tells them to invite forth all of the, the stupid, blind, deaf, gold, wood, silver, pagan idols that they've been worshipping. God puts himself in the ring, puts out an open call to any of the other gods, come and do any of the things that I can do. And one of his key phrases, one of the key things that he keeps on saying, I can do this because I am the only one and there is no other God beside me. The thing that he can do and no other God can do is foretell the future in exactitude and then bring it about to pass. That false gods cannot do. They're not in control of history. They don't control anything. But God could. And so you, you see this, this divine sort of a smack talk going between God and the false idols and he's showing his, his, his ability to foretell things coming and we also see this in Jesus. As Mark shows us that throughout the gospel, he is, I mean, he, he foretells the destruction of the temple, that happens. He foretells certain things and, and they happen. But, but one of the most powerful things is that he foretells with prophetic exactitude that only God could do the very thing that the Greeks claimed disprove his divinity. You see the way Mark does this? Jesus proves his divinity by foretelling the very thing that the Greeks said disproved his divinity, which was his crucifixion under the hands of Pontius Pilate. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be taken by the Jews. They're going to whip me, mock me, spit on me. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to put me on a cross. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. And the, apostles, the, the disciples didn't get it. They were confused. They thought it was all po poetic. They, they didn't quite get it. But three times, Jesus explicitly foretells his coming death and resurrection. As if Mark is saying, who else can do that but the true God? Don't see his crucifixion as a proof that he's not the true son of God. That he's not more powerful than your false gods. Seeing the crucifixion and his foretelling of the crucifixion in minute detail as proof that he is, in fact, the true Son of God. <coughs> in Isaiah 40, we see the phrase Yahweh call out. He says, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One, because he's able to foretell what he's going to do in salvation. Jesus can speak and claim that very same thing. Through Mark's gospel, through the preaching of any pastor that stood up in Rome, they could say, to whom will you compare Jesus of Nazareth? There is no one beside him. Yes, he died, but he died having foretold his death, and then he resurrected in power. And do you remember that Mark includes, in Mark chapter 14, you can, you can go there if you wish, Mark chapter 14, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 15, verse 39 as Jesus, in this key moment, gives up his spirit, breathes his last, cries out on the cross, and then dies, 
And then the, the sky goes black, the, the curtain in the temple is torn. As all of these things occur, it says in Mark 15, 39, and when the centurion, so, so here's, a, here's a Roman, remember Mark's context, here's a Roman who worships all kinds of sons of gods. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So what Mark wants his his Gentile readers to understand, and, and, and of course the Christians to understand about the Gentile skeptics, was that God was no weak God. God is, in fact, the infinite, all-powerful, all-wise, eternal, all-knowing God that never had a beginning, will never have an end, knows all things, prophesies all things, controls all things, and is more powerful than anything. And yet in that power, he was not made to be weak. He was not torn from his throne. He stepped down off his throne and entered into intentional weakness for a time so that he might for us and for our salvation, represent us in the cross and die for our sins. When when the Greeks were mocking this idea of God becoming man or, or, or God dying on a cross, what they were missing was the very mystery of the gospel. The one thing that when you get it, you're a Christian. The one thing that when you get it, everything else in the Bible falls into focus, which was this, that God became man in order to die for man. He became a man. He joined himself to a human nature so that he could be accounted as a true representative of humans. God could not just come down and and die. An angel could not just be sent and died. The lambs and the goats and the bulls, they could never be accounted as sufficient to be dying for human sin. What had to die for human sin, according to God's justice, was human life. Therefore, God took on human life, human nature, human blood, human soul, human flesh, so that he could die representing humans. But being God, he could die for more than just one other soul. If he was just a perfect human, he could only die for another human. The law says life for life, eye for eye, one for one. It's all equally measured out. And yet him being divine God in human flesh meant that he could, before the Father, represent an infinite amount of humans. And and when when God passed the the sins of all of his people who would believe in him onto Jesus, he was able to faithfully represent them as human and truly satisfy God's wrath against them in his divinity. And here in the crucifixion of Jesus and then in his glorious resurrection, which assures us eternal life, we all, Greek, Gentile, pagan, Roman, Jew, every one of us has eternal salvation when we do nothing but believe in him. Simply place our faith in him. Believe into him. Believe upon him. Call on his name to save us. When we do that, we are saved. And so we see these two themes. Jesus as the true Israelite. Jesus as the true son of God. And therefore, the time is fulfilled. And Jesus' proclamation makes makes so much sense. When he said, as he was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When he said the time is fulfilled, his meaning was that all the prophecies are being fulfilled in me. His meaning, the kingdom is now established. 
by me. He's meaning the atonement is now completed by me. He's saying that the true temple, which would be the church, is being built by me. And since all of that is true, the last phrase in his sentence must go worldwide. Not only can he say, repent and believe the gospel, but also the church would then pick that up and take it all over the empire and to every land that they could find the message that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come, the Savior has died and risen, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus refuses, in this, in this language, as, and this, is, this will be our last, our last theme that we look at to close, repent and believe the gospel. This is, this is a fitting end to the study of Mark. This is how Jesus started, and this is where Mark expected the Christians to take this message of Jesus' life and start proclaiming it. This is, this is where the Great Commission finds us, with an obligation, preach to others and do ourselves the repenting that is necessary and the believing in Jesus Christ in the gospel. Jesus refuses to be a subject of historical study alone. There are many people who come to history and know about Jesus and even believe the true things said about him, maybe even in the Gospel of Mark, and they are thankful for their historical records, and they'll study Jesus as a historical subject, and Jesus, by his own very words, refuses to have that thought about him. He is God in flesh. He cannot just be thought about. He must be believed or discredited. He demands, and what he demands changes everything. He cannot just be a, a, a thing that you think about and believe in, friends. He has to be your Lord and your Savior. He also refuses here, when he says repent and believe the gospel, he refuses to be the source of a mere moral code. Whether it's right-wing conservatism or left-wing social justice, Jesus refuses to simply be the example of, or the moral code that builds some kind of human utopian society. He is a penal substitutionary sacrifice. He is the one in whom you must believe or you will perish. You don't get to borrow God's blessings but through Jesus' example, but refuse to repent and believe the gospel. He reconciles you to God through his death. He's not just a good humanistic example. Thirdly, in his demand, repent and believe the gospel, Jesus refuses to welcome to himself those who do not repent. He will not bring into his kingdom those who hold fast to their sinful lifestyle. He will not reconcile to God those who refuse to turn from their sin. Jesus will not entertain the idea of a Christian that believes the truth about the accounts, even sees relevance, even believes the theology, but holds fast and refuses to mortify the sinful patterns in our life. He starts his proclamation, repent, turn from your way of thinking, turn from your sinful lifestyle, bring your confession to Christ. Those who try and name the name of the Lord but refuse to depart from iniquity, Paul outright declares as fallen in his letters to Timothy. Let all those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity is his command. To think of Jesus, if we think of him purely theologically, if we just study him, if we just think of him in these broad themes through the Bible, it can be easy to miss sight of him as our personal Lord and Savior. 
You need to remember that he is not just these broad and glorious theological categories. He is a person who came to the earth to satisfy God's wrath against your sin. He died for you, Christian. And he demands that there is no part of your life that you leave unturned. He, does, he loves you far too much to, to be unbothered by the fact that there is still unrepentant sins in your life. Jesus' first command was repent. His continual command was repent. His current command is Christian. Your whole life must be one of daily, continually, hourly repentance. Turn from sin. Make no excuses for it. Through constant prayer, through zealous Bible reading, through the means of grace and fellowship, bring your sin to Jesus and have it taken out of your life. Jesus refuses, though, to be kept inside the Christian club. And this is the, this is the call to the unrepentant, to the non-Christian. I don't know what you will call yourself, the unbeliever, the secularist, just your normal run-of-the-mill person who is not in Jesus. Jesus is not okay with you not hearing his gospel. He demands the Christians. This is, this is part of my job. This is the job of every, every Christian, that you would know that in Jesus, you can have forgiveness. I hear people all the time. I'll talk to them about Jesus and they say, oh, oh, I don't need that stuff. I'm not a Christian. Like, yeah, no, no, I know that. I know that. That's the problem. You don't believe it. Yeah, I don't believe this stuff. It's not for me. No, no it's for you because you don't believe it. I'm, I'm, I don't go to church. I, I'm, I'm aware of all of these things. That's why I'm talking to you. Don't hear any of what I'm about to say is message for Christians. Yeah, we believe it. We love it. It's for you as well. This message is for everybody under all of creation, that you must repent and believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus died. Believe that he rose, and in him you can have forgiveness. Think of what this would have meant in the Roman world. As Mark is writing this, as, as the gospel has gone across the Roman Empire, it would have meant a, a large change in many mindsets for the Romans. To say, repent and believe the gospel is not just believe a couple of historical facts. They would have, they would have had to, first of all, change how they thought about the very nature of truth itself. Truth is no longer just whatever Caesar declares. Truth is not whatever, whatever seems to be in line with the old mythologies and tales. Truth is apparently a person... It is God, and truth is defined by what he reveals to us. We have to come across those same mind changes today in our postmodern world. Secondly, creation. They would have had to come to realize, as they're hearing the gospel preached, and we have to come to this realization today, friends, if you're not a believer in Jesus, that creation is not just some random scientific accident, not a cosmic, cosmic mess and, and coincidence, to the Romans and the Greeks, it was not just a, a, a thing that occurred because the gods were, gods were playing around and created what they call earth and humanity. No, creation is made by Jesus, intentionally by Jesus. It's all accountable to Jesus, which means that for the Roman, also for you today, you need to start realizing, I'm created by Jesus. I don't know my maker, and I'm actively opposing my maker. Everything that you see in this world is made by him. You ought to think about him, to think about yourself in relation to him and realize where you stand. Because, because also, fourthly, what would have had to change is that for a Roman, they would have had to understand that their lifestyles, their sins, their failures, their mistakes, they weren't just little failures that might upset the gods. They were direct 
criminal acts of cosmic treason and rebellion against the one true living God revealed in Jesus Christ. And all of the times that they'd ever gone to a temple, ever gone to a party, to a festival, to try and uh, atone for their sins or worship another God or get back on their good sides, even those things were themselves horrendous, idolatrous sins that deserved eternity in hell. They realize now they're accountable to God through Jesus for their sins and accountable to nobody else. You need to realize this today. If you're not a Christian, don't think about your sins in terms of how, what other people say about you or think about you how other people view you, what other people are going to think about you or say about you, depending on certain actions, you need to realize that in a total vacuum, just you before God, that is where your sin is counted. And each one of your sins are counted directly as treasonous acts against him. Hell forever is the punishment. Death and then hell forever is the punishment for anybody who has sinned and does not have Jesus to atone for their sins. And that's, that's one of the last things that a Roman in their day would have had to come to realize, as this phrase, repent and believe the gospel went out, even today, repent and believe the gospel, one of the things that that is meaning is approach no other way, come up to God through no other means than through faith in Jesus alone. Never try and meet God on your own terms. Never try and meet God through your own experience or through your own good works or, or according to your own reputation or fixing yourself. Never Try that. It will never work. Jesus dying on the cross and praying to God that he would not have to die on the cross if he did not have to die on the cross is proof positive that there is no other way to be made right before God. So to the Roman world that worshipped so many different gods and had so many different ways to, to appease them, they were being told there's one channel of being made right with God. There's one way to be justified. Every other way leads to eternal hell and it is believing on Jesus who died for you. It is believing on Jesus who rose for us. It is believing in him alone. And that sounds like a narrow message because it is, but it is a narrow message which everybody is invited to. It's not not an exclusive message in the sense that only some can come. It's exclusive in the sense that there's only one way, but may all come. Everybody has been invited by Jesus. He said to everybody, repent and believe the gospel. I'm going to close with a story from, from Charles Spurgeon. He was a, a great preacher back in the 1800s, and this is particularly directed at those who are not yet Christians. And as we finish our study in Mark's gospel, we finish this sermon was talking so much about the gospel. Maybe you are, you are tempted to believe it and you wish that the truth could be that good, that in a moment, all of your sins forgiven, but you doubt that if you came, Jesus would truly receive you. Charles Spurgeon, he told this story uh, of, a, of a man who, who uh, had, had heard, uh, the, the foreman of a, of, of a certain kind had often heard the gospel but he was troubled with the fear that he might not come, that, that had he come to Christ, he might not be accepted. Maybe that's where you are today. Here's the story. His master, one of his employers, one day sent a card around to him saying, come to my house immediately after work. Well, the foreman appeared at his master's door and the master came out and said somewhat roughly, what do you want, John? Troubling me at this time. Work is done. What right do you have to come to my house? Sir, said the foreman, I, I had a card from you saying that I was to come after work. 
The gentleman said, do you mean to say that merely because you had a card from me to say that you are welcome to come to my house after business hours and call on me, that that is enough? He says, well, sir, replied the foreman, I don't understand you, but it seems to me that as you sent for me, I had a right to come. Come in, John, said his master. I have another message that I want to read to you. And he sat down and read these words, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, do you think after such an invitation that you are now not allowed to come to Christ, that he would meet you at the door and kick you out after such an invitation? The man saw it at once. He was converted, and that is a message to you today. Do you think, do you dare call God a liar who says so frequently in his word, come to me, I will give you rest. Come to me, I will never cast you out. Come to me and have forgiveness. That is an invitation to you. You have a right to make good on that. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for this gospel of Mark, for this this good news of the, the life story of Jesus. We are so thankful that your spirit working through Peter and through the pen of Mark put down all of these details and these stories and these parables and these miracles that God, we might be able to see Jesus as he truly is, the true God in flesh, the true fulfillment of all of the prophecies and all of the the types and shadows that you had written down in your Old Testament. We thank you, Lord God, so much for this word that we can study and your promise that as we do so, you will reveal Christ to us. I pray, Lord God, that as this study is now sealed to our hearts, that you would would show us Jesus Christ through its pages, through what we've learned, that that we would be able to hold fast to his promises, understand more of how he saves us, and be found more confident more assured, more more hopeful in the truth of the gospel for our souls. Father God, would we find ourselves obeying by your Holy Spirit's enabling exactly what Jesus has commanded us, to repent and to believe the gospel, to turn from our sin and to hold fast to the promise that Jesus died and rose triumphantly for sinners so that we can be made right before God. Father, I pray that those people in this room who know about you, who understand the facts, but do not trust themselves to Jesus, would today be saved. You would give to them hearts to believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. You would give them new spirits, new souls inside that would would be uh, filled with new spiritual life, able to serve you, able to glorify you, able to love you. Father God, I pray that we as a church would take, take hold of this great and grand and glorious message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would zealously, with, without fatigue and without lethargy, see that it goes to the ends of, our, ends of our street, ends of our community, ends of our nation, and of course, Lord, the ends of the earth, that Jesus might be glorified in saving all kinds of sinners and saving sinners in all kinds of ways. Lord Jesus Christ, we exalt you, we worship you, we thank you that our sins are forgiven and that you enable us to live a holy life. And we thank you for all of this in your name and through your grace. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, amen. Amen.